The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, um, welcome, Gil, to our um, new uh, question and answer session from the um, IMC online community. Um, we've had lots of people um, uh, communicating with us about, um, you know, how interested they are in these sessions and also expressing great gratitude for um, your answers. Um, so uh, today um, we have a few more of these questions for you to answer. And um, starting with a question from Lawrence from uh, Nishinomiya in uh, Hyogo in Japan. Uh, and uh, Lawrence would like to know um, if would like you to talk about the gradual way that experiential knowledge relates to guidance from teachings. Well, hello, Marguerite. It's nice to be with you again. It's nice to get these kind of questions from all over the world. So the question about the uh, how does uh, how does uh, teachings support or guide one in the experiential knowledge that practice gives? It's a good question. Um, the emphasis, I think, in Buddhism to a great extent is personal direct uh, insight, experience um, of the Dharma practice. And you want to be very careful not to take Buddhist teachings and try to um, uh, believe them uh, blindly and then mold yourself, try to convince yourself that they're true Rather, I think it's good to take Buddhist teachings and be challenged by them and to question them and, um, and to look in your own direct experience how they might be true. So uh, sometimes Buddha, uh, teachings point you in directions to look. Uh, many people are looking in the wrong way for happiness and so the teachings are not telling you what to believe so much as saying, uh, look this way instead. Look into your own direct experience. Look into your uh, mind into your heart, uh, rather than looking into uh, the stock market or looking into, um, you know, some relationship is going to be the lasting solution to your life. And then uh, once you look at yourself, uh, the Buddhist teachings also uh, suggest looking at, at particular things within yourself, looking and uh, understanding the hindrances, the five hindrances, such as how aversion or desire or uh, resistance, sloth and torpor. Um, anxiety, agitation, and doubt operate in your life. <clears throat> so it's very useful to look at that. And then it's also, uh, <clears throat> the teachings also give instructions of how to look, how to pay attention, to try to do it non-judgmentally, non-reactively, uh, to have a certain degree of acceptance or gentleness or kindness towards what you see, even when you have to uh, let go of things. You don't want to let go with aversion. You don't want to uh, try to cultivate things with strong desire. So there's kind of an open quality of the mind, a relaxed quality of the mind that the teachings encourage us to, to how we pay attention. Um, <clears throat> so the, the teachings can be encouraging, they can point us in particular directions. Um, when you listen to teachings, one of the nice approaches is to assume that you already do it and ask yourself, how is it I already do this particular teaching, this particular approach? Um, 
because there might be some small corner of your life where you're already uh, in some way, in a modest way, maybe, maybe already acting those ways or understood those things. So the teachings say, look at your clinging and let go of your clinging. And to hear it in an absolute way might seem much too big. Um, and then there can be a lot of questions about all the exceptions of when maybe you shouldn't cling. But if you look at how you already let go of clinging, you discover that you actually do it in many small ways throughout the day. And then you can see the benefits of that, and then you can say, how can I expand what I, what I already know? Where can I apply what I already know? Um, and that kind of approach that builds on what you know is sometimes more useful than taking absolute Buddhist statements and uh, trying to believe them in an absolute way. Thank you, Gail. <clears throat> Next question comes from Peter in Dublin in Ireland. Um, Peter completed your online course on concentration some time ago. And as part of a course, uh, you asked that um, people learn the Metta Sutta, which Peter did. And lately, um, Peter found that he's changing the line as a mother to uh, saying in his own way, as a father. And he wonders if it's okay. This is very recent and it felt just natural, more understandable. I have a great relationship with my mother. I am a father and maybe I find it easier to relate to metta from the paternal aspect. That's a great question and uh, I think it's wonderful that you have personalized uh, this particular poem for yourself by changing it from mother to father. <clears throat> the whole purpose of the Dharma, of these teachings, is to be helpful for you. And that criteria of what is helpful, to do that which is helpful, is a very useful approach in practicing Dharma. And if you find it more useful to do a father rather than mother, then you have your own answer. <clears throat> so as long as it's helpful, then uh, please do it. It might be at some point that uh, there might be a period of time where it's helpful to go back to using a mother, uh, or maybe that'll never happen. Uh, the whole approach to, to uh, loving-kindness practice um, is to do the practice um, in a way that is helpful for you, that's beneficial for you, uh, uh, rather than struggling with ways that it's difficult for you. Uh, you take, you start doing loving kindness where it's easy, and um, and then you build from that. And so the same thing with the, the, these teachings. If you can reword them for yourself in a way that makes them more relevant and easier for you to get access to get into it then uh, by all means, as the, mindfulness, as the mindfulness and the loving-kindness get stronger, then at some point uh, you want to universalize your loving-kindness, and then you want to include all fathers and all mothers and all relatives and all people in different ways. But at this point, in using the poem, please, by all means, um, adapt it for how it works for you. Thank you. Next question is from Kindu in New Zealand. I feel that I haven't got a proper meditation to release the aversion with which I cling to past memories of betrayal, pain, hurt, etc. Gil, you're really good with putting words together in meditations that strike the heart. I was wondering if you could do a guided meditation on releasing the aversion or if you've done something like that before. Yeah, I don't think I've done any guided meditations on specifically about aversion. 
Uh, it's a great topic, and uh, perhaps someday I can do it. So a few things I can say. Um, there's a uh, there's a teacher here in America named Stephen Levine, who wrote several books. Uh, some of them, I think, one's called maybe Guided Meditations. Um, several books that have a lot of guided meditations in them, and I'm pretty confident in one of those books that you'll find a guided meditation of working with aversion or difficult emotional states like that. And uh, what you could do is uh, look at his books and uh, find the meditation that he offers and then um, either record it or have a friend read it or a friend record it and listen to that. In terms of um, what goes on, what I teach or how I, the kind of uh, teachings or guided meditations I've done here, um, probably the some people find it very helpful to do loving-kindness practice when there's aversion. And so there's you know, a number of guided meditations I have on loving-kindness. The other approach is to uh, use the mindfulness to look directly at the aversion. And, um, and to do that, you want to be very um, um, uh, very patient and see if you can approach your aversion the first lesson you might have to learn is how to approach your aversion with a certain degree of um, non-reactivity or feeling that of equanimity. Or that It's okay to have aversion, that your aversion deserves to be seen clearly, to be felt clearly, uh, uh, that the aversion is okay to feel it and let it be there. And then once you kind of begin to approach that kind of attitude, then to look more carefully at the aversion, what's actually going on there. Um, and uh, what is your attitude towards the aversion? What is the attitude underneath your aversion? Is there fear? Is there hurt um, behind the aversion? Is there anger? Um, but to turn towards it and hold it very gently in the in your awareness, and um, as if it has permission to be there, and then see how it unfolds. See what unfolds as you hold it gently, kindly in your awareness. I wish you well with that. Thank you. Next question from Mason in East Point, Michigan. On the IMC website, there are instructions for sitting meditation, walking meditation, etc. I wonder if you could give a basic set of instructions or guidelines for going on a multi-day retreat by oneself. And then another related question is whether it's advisable to try a multi-day multi retreat by myself, given that I've been meditating regularly for less than one year. Thank you for the question. And um, um, probably if you've been meditating for six months to a year on a regular basis, uh, you're ready for a multi-day retreat. And um, some, for some people, it's nice to start slowly, start with maybe a, one, a weekend retreat and then build from that. Some people like to jump in and, um, and take a 10-day retreat, a week-long retreat right, right away. Depends a little bit on your personality and your feeling for it all. Um, but generally, it's good to take, take your time and build uh, slowly over time. Um, and... Um, uh, it's a wonderful to go on a, on a multi-day retreat because it allows one to understand the meditation practice in a new way. It allows one to understand oneself in a deeper way. 
Um, it allows one to practice much more thoroughly and consistently than in daily life. Uh, sometimes practicing all day on a retreat uh, shows you where some of the problems are with how you're meditating. And so you have a chance to face them and look with them and, and uh, work them out. Whereas by sitting every day, uh, even if you sit for an hour every day, uh, sometimes the problems that you have in meditation are not really uh, showing themselves because you haven't practiced, you're not practicing long enough. Um, sometimes on retreat, the mind gets quite settled, and the teachings you receive on the teach uh, on retreat can go much more deeply than the teachings you hear in everyday life. Uh, one of the um, one of the common pieces of advice I give people who go on a multi-day retreat is uh, to have an attitude or a policy kind of an attitude that whatever happens on the retreat is supposed to happen. Now, you don't have to believe that, you know, literally, but if you have that attitude, then rather than getting upset or blaming what's happened, uh, you'll turn towards whatever's happening whether it's in your own mind or around you in your environment, and and look and see how you can practice with it, how you can be free with it, how you can look at your reactivity, your reactions, how you can learn to let go, how you can learn to be present, um, as opposed to get carrying, carried away with judgments and aversion and, and this shouldn't be happening or um, there's something wrong with me. Um, so the attitude, uh, whatever happens is supposed to happen, in fact, you can kind of, in your mind, even uh, even if something, even kind of do a little ritual or a little visualization, that if something you know challenging happens on the retreat, uh, look at your wristwatch and say to yourself, right on time, it's come just just on time that my knee starts hurting, just on time that the person near me um, is making a lot of noise and coughing, just on time that lunch is late, just on time that lunch is burnt. Um, just on time that I'm now thinking about, um, you know, my high school challenges that I had. So whatever whatever goes on, um, take it as it's supposed to happen and then work with it. Uh, bring mindfulness to it. Uh, learn how to let go in the midst of it. And that might be the most important lesson that you have on the retreat. Thank you. Next question is from Todd in Warren, New Jersey. I have been meditating for a couple of years and I'm grateful for the benefits that have come with this practice. I find myself interested in learning more about the Dharma in order to get even more out of the teachings. I've listened to talks about the hindrances, the factors of awakening and other specific topics, but I'm having trouble figuring out the best way to tie all this together into a cohesive approach to a greater understanding of the Dharma that will help me along with my spiritual path? So that's a great question. And um, it's wonderful to study the different aspects of the Dharma, but to try to uh, intellectually synthesize it or have a bigger kind of context to hold it all sometimes um, is not so helpful. Sometimes what's going to be helpful is to take one particular aspect of the practice and study that deeply, practice deeply with it, and then um, it'll open up at some point to include the other aspects. 
So, for example, if you uh, study the hindrances really well and bring a lot of mindfulness to them and, uh, and help develop your concentration by learning to let go of the hindrances, at some point the factors of awakening will appear on their own for you in your mind, and then you can study the factors of awakening. Or you could start studying a particular factors of awakening, maybe spend a week on each one, looking at how it plays out in your life and trying to develop it and cultivate it. And if you do that, um, probably what you'll find is that um, the hindrances will also show themselves and you have to face them and work through them as well. So sometimes taking one particular topic and working with that is the best way to get to the overarching kind of synthesis of it. Um, Another approach uh, to take when you have a fair understanding of the Dharma and different aspects of it, a way that ties it all together perhaps, the cohesive approach, is um, to uh, go on retreat. Do do a multi-day meditation retreat where you bring your whole life to the practice, your whole being to uh, the practice for those days. And there's something about bringing your whole self to the practice that then helps you understand how the Dharma is whole as well, how the Dharma is comprehensive in the way that it approaches your life. And the final thing is that um, rather than some overarching uh, cohesion or overarching um, umbrella um, way that holds it all together, it might be more useful to think of it as there's a common denominator, there's a root to all the Dharma teachings. And if you understand how simple that root is, then um, it gives some coherence to everything that follows. And for me, the simple root, the simplest way of saying saying it, is that uh, when you cling, you will suffer. And if you let go of your clinging, that suffering will go away. And from that root teaching, all the other aspects will come forth. Uh, they're They're all dependent or refer back to that simple idea. So I wish you well with your study of the Dharma. Thank you. Next question from Lauren in um, Cuero, Texas. I live in the country and I'm not part of any Sangha. I'm involved in the meat trade. Somehow in the last two days, two years, sorry, of daily meditation practice and listening to Dharma talks and reading books on Buddhism. I only last week saw where being in the meat trade I sell grass beef, grass-fed beef to individuals. It's specifically not a proper livelihood. I have qualms about taking my animals to the processor, but I also eat meat. The first time I killed chickens myself, I did so largely so I could plainly see what being a meat eater entails. At some point, I could easily become vegetarian, but this would create more discomfort in my marriage. I have already told my husband that I want to soon quit being involved in the beef business. But this may mean the animals will go to feedlots, which I believe will create more suffering for them. So my question is, am I wasting my time on daily meditation while not practicing Silla? Now that I'm up to 45 minutes per sitting, I feel it is of even more value to me. I do not kill scorpions, snakes, or other life forms. Only the animals I take to the butcher. I apologize for introducing these ideas of violence, but this is something I would like counsel and compassion on. Yes, thank you for your question, and I certainly have compassion for your concerns. It's a beautiful concern, actually. 
I'm, uh, I'm always very happy when people bring these kinds of questions because my hope is that the Dharma practice, the meditation practice, will help people become more ethical, help people be, add to the good and the benefit of the world and to themselves, and, and specifically in how they act and live in their, in their world. I don't always have good, um, good, question, good answers to this, or I'm somewhat reluctant sometimes to give um, you know, st- strong ethical admonitions or guidelines. I'd rather let people discover it for themselves. But it certainly seems that you've gotten a lot of benefit from your meditation practice, and it's the fact that you would ask these questions uh, to me is an indication that uh, you ha- uh, the value that you've gotten from meditating. I'd certainly encourage you to continue meditating, and uh, how you're going to negotiate um, your what you do with your animals uh, and with your family and your husband. That is a you know I don't know the answer to that, but you'll have to weigh the different. Um, you know, try to get a sense of what provides the greater good and what you're able to do. It could be at some point that you keep meditating, keep developing your sensitivity, your ethical sensitivity and compassion, and it becomes really obvious that you can't uh, be involved in the animal trade anymore and you have no choice but to stop. Or it could be that uh, you see the suffering of the animals, but uh, there might be other sufferings. If you don't do it, You know, maybe there's other things going on that... Um, mitigate uh, your choices you make uh, and the well-being of your husband perhaps is one of them uh, you have to kind of work it out with him so that you guys can live um, you know in some kind of uh, peace so how you find your way is a very open question but um, take your time be patient and continue to practice your mindfulness and continue to ask these kinds of questions these are great questions to ask in that it involves your husband as well, I hope that you're able to have kind of an open-ended discussion with your husband, sharing uh, these concerns you have uh, well before you make any decision so that he maybe feels like he's participating in the decision-making that you make or he's, you're informed by how he is and his his feelings about, about it. And likewise, that he's uh, uh, is well-informed, understands your feelings and what's going on so that it's not a surprise when you decide not to eat meat anymore. Um, So for some people, sila, ethics, is a practice they do to lay a foundation for their meditation. For other people, meditation is uh, a practice they do that lays a foundation for their sila, for their ethics. And so some people, they do both. So please continue practicing your meditation and when you're and it'll become clear to you I believe at some point what you need to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. This this is the end of our session and we look forward to more questions from you and um, to having another such session um, hopefully in the next month. And uh, thank you, Gail. Thank you. Great.